0: Everybody, and Merry Christmas, almost, but close enough. Uh, we've, uh, if you've uh, just come today or you're visiting, we've been going through a series, we're calling it A Month of Christmas, where every Sunday we've just been looking at an aspect of Christ's birth and his life and how that affects our life, how that affects some of the deepest problems in the world. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, I've been going 10 minutes uh, shorter than normal. Anybody? You're Welcome. Merry Christmas. (laughs) I'm going to make up for all that lost time this morning, so uh, just kidding, just kidding. But today is the last, uh, before Christmas Eve, today is the the last sermon uh, message in that series. The first one we spoke about how Christ's birth uh, fixes human brokenness. The word we used for that was sin, and the week after that, how Christ's birth, how Christmas answers the problem of uh, a fallen world, the brokenness of the world. Um, And this Sunday, we're going to talk about how Christmas answers the problem of fallen angels, Uh, so the devil. So we're going to speak about the devil during Christmas because, I know you're like, wow, this is weird, Christmas Christmas is one of the most important events in the Christian's life, in the life of the world, uh, because it answers some of the biggest things that people have to deal with. I just want to look at that, what Christmas does, what Christ does about the evil in the world, and I think, and I hope, you will leave uh, this morning a little more hopeful than when you came, Um, but before we start, let me just pray for us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in you, in your birth, in your death, in your resurrection, in the life that you lived, all of the things that uh, Christians celebrate. And we ask God that as we look deeply into some of those things, you would reveal yourself to us in that way that you do. You do that on an individual basis sometimes. You'll just speak to one person, in a corner about something that only they know. And you're just so kind to do that. Pray that you would do that today. Pray that you would also speak to us, not individually, but, but corporately, as a, as a group, a community, a church of people who are just seeking your face. And we pray that this would be a group of people who are steered uh, by the gospel of the Lord Jesus And pray that even as we we dive a little deeper and lower than we might normally go, speaking about fallen angels and devils and demons, we pray that our minds would not be fixated on such things, but in learning about those things, we would see the power and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And see all that you have done to rescue and to redeem and to renew all things and to save people for yourself. We pray that you would show us that. And you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in, a, in the majority world, you speak about things like uh, devils and demons. It's not a a difficult thing for people in the majority world to wrap their heads around in Latin America, and in Asia, and in Africa. It actually makes sense of their worldview. It's only in the West, in America, in Europe, uh, where the thought of a devil, and not a devil, you know, that, that we might use that term to symbolize a principle but to think of the devil as an actual being is laughable uh, to the modern mind, to the western mind. I think it was in a, uh, an article in the New York Times that said that there, might, there are 90, 95% of Americans might believe in some concept of a God, of God. Uh, but the vast majority of them do not believe in a devil, which is very interesting we're willing, if our minds are willing to get to a place where we believe in an actual God, we're not able to believe in a devil. So we're, we're okay with personifying goodness, but we're not okay with personifying evil. Two-thirds of those same people do not believe in a devil. And I just want, I just want to stop right there and, and for us to think of the implications of that. That if there's no devil, think of the, the, the implications of that. If there's no personified evil, that seems like it would actually raise up more questions than answers. In the West, um, we tend to chalk up most things to natural causes. There's always a, a natural cause to explain anything that happens in the world. And since everything can be explained... By natural causes, we would then say that everything has a scientific explanation, including the bad things in the world, right? Now, there are scientific explanations, but we have reduced that. We have reduced everything down to that. So, just in the West. So, if there's something wrong, it's not necessarily evil, we might say there's a a psychological reason for that. So it might have been somebody's upbringing, it might have been their environment, there's a sociological system uh, or reason for a given thing. And if we have scientific explanations for everything, if there's always a natural cause to everything that happens, it leads us to a place where we can say, uh, that we can figure this out. No matter how bad it gets, we can figure this out. There's a, a, a natural explanation for it and a natural solution for it that we can figure out. Think of the words of a Tim Keller who would say, uh, looking at this, over the last hundred years, we have seen, even, even if you're not a, a, a Christian, uh, even if you're a, a natural humanist, a, a, human, a humanist naturalist, you would say, gosh, over the last hundred years, that type of reasoning is starting to wear thin. Uh, he quotes a, a book by the name, uh, from an author by the name of Andrew DeBanco, who's a professor at Columbia, wrote a book called The Death of Satan, okay? Now, DeBanco is not a Christian. He's actually a, a secular humanist. But he writes this book on the problem of evil, and I just want to give you this quote, okay? Not a Christian, secular professor at Columbia, writes this in 1995. He says, The, the gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. He goes on to say, we've jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic transcendent supernatural evil. We don't believe in that. In fact, we don't even like to use the word evil. And the reason we don't like it is because it implies value judgments and moral absolutes. So we use medical terms. We talk about dysfunction, and we talk about pathology, and we don't use moral terminology. He goes on to say this, but as the 20th century has gone on, it's gotten harder and harder to say that. The Holocaust and ethnic cleansings and all of these traumatic injustices in the world are just because of bad psychological and sociological adjustment. In other words, he's saying we're We've painted ourselves into a corner, and we've run out of reasons that are able to explain the evil in the world. And he goes on to quote a movie, uh, The Silence of the Lambs. I do not recommend you watch that movie, but that's what I'm here for. I can read the books and watch the movie so that you don't have to. (laughs) There's a a scene where the detect, uh, a detective, Officer Starling, is asking herself these questions out loud. She's saying, saying of the, the man, Hannibal Lecter, this pretty awful monster of a person, saying, what happened to make him so twisted? Why is he so cruel? She's thinking this out loud. Unfortunately, he, he hears her, bad move right there, and he answers her. And Hannibal Lecter says this. says, nothing happened to me. I understand it's really hard. For those of you that have watched the movie, it's really hard to to think of this quote without thinking of Anthony Hopkins' voice, but try to separate for a moment. He says, nothing happened to me, I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everyone in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. But look at me. Can you stand to say I'm evil? What DeBanco goes on to say as he's quoting this scene is that modern people cannot answer the monster's question. This is the predicament we've, we've come into. And the Bible doesn't have that problem. The Bible calls out a devil personified evil and it teaches that there are real personified powers of darkness called devils and demons or fallen angels you know they're they're not gods that are uncreated they're angels that have gone awry who wreak havoc on the world on creation on people and attempt to deceive and to destroy it's a basic idea of the devil in the bible the devil is not harmless you know it's not like When we think of angels, it's it's not the the picture of the Hallmark card that you see in the the grocery store of a cute little fat baby, you know, throwing arrows of love at at people. It's not Cupid. These are are supernatural beings, or at least supernormal beings, and they're not harmless. But here's where the Bible goes that also leaves us with hope. They are not in control. Powerful, but not all-powerful. Even the devil himself is forever subject to the sweeping power of Jesus Christ, his birth and his death and his resurrection. Now, I don't think it's too much of a stretch that if you can get to a place where you believe in a real God, real demons aren't that much of a stretch for you. So let's just say that demons and devils are real as the Bible presents them to be. How does Christmas save the world from spiritual darkness and oppression. Here's what I wanna do for the the next few minutes. Normally I, I take one text and I explain it for a few minutes. I want to just give you six brief verses. Snapshots, if you will, from beginning to end, giving you the story of Christmas and how it pertains to the problem of evil, okay? Just six snapshots. I'm gonna start with Genesis chapter three, verse 15. And this is all the way back uh, at creation when sin enters the world. You remember uh, there's this character, the serpent who's influenced by the devil, uh, uh, we assume, and that serpent deceives uh, Adam and Eve and they eat of the fruit, they sin, and sin enters the world, and with sin is death, death and turmoil, and the curse that comes upon the world that we experience to this day. Now, as God is explaining these curses, he, he speaks to the serpent. I want, this is the verse I want you to read. Genesis chapter 3. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can read this. But it will also be on the screen for those of you that don't uh, have them. It will be right behind me. And he's pronouncing this curse on the serpent. he says things like, you know, you're cursed above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. You will, you know, ride on your belly and eat the dust, all of this stuff. But then he says in verse 15, a, a verse perhaps we've glossed over when we've read it, but we shouldn't. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. i stop right there. We shouldn't gloss over this verse because it is going to make sense of all the other five verses that I give you from this point on. This is the beginning of it all. I just want to point out four things that this verse reveals from us. One, there is a devil, right? It doesn't say devil in there, but this is a snake that's talking, right? I don't know if you've ever seen a snake, but they don't talk. So in this story, the author is trying to show us something is special in a very evil way about the snake. He's at at the very least influenced by something else. He's speaking, and yet even the things that he's speaking aren't good. They're vile. Later in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, in chapter 20 as well, the apostle John will refer back to this by saying that the devil, referring to the devil as the ancient serpent, so all throughout the Bible, we're given this sense. Now, I don't know what this means. I don't know if the snake has like, is influenced by the devil. I don't think all snakes are the devil, although you might disagree. But what we can get from this story is that the author is trying to tell us this is a special representation of the devil's activity, at least that, right? So one out of the four things, there's a devil, Two, there's a conflict. He goes on to say, the the author says, I will put enmity or hostility, there's hostility between you, the devil, and the woman. He's not speaking about snakes biting us all the time, He's, he's speaking about the devil and the devil's activity, that there will be from this time in all of human history, this hostility that we just can't get rid of. Everything from wars to racism to violence to broken fa- Like everything that there is that's wrong with the world comes from evil. And here's where it originates. So conflict. But two, listen to this. There will come a hero somewhere at some, at some point in time. I'm getting this from uh, that, that next line where he says, he refers to her offspring. The offspring of the woman. There is coming a future descendant of the woman who's gonna do something to change all of this. And What is he gonna do? He's gonna bring victory. Look at, look at this, the last two lines. That the offspring of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent, and the serpent will bruise his heel. Uh, heel. This is kind of metaphorical language for a conflict that's gonna happen later. That perhaps the, the serpent, you know, the devil, is going to, to, to hurt the offspring of the woman. Maybe it's even a mortal blow. Maybe it'll even look hopeless. But out of that something more ultimate will, will transpire that this this hero will crush the head of the serpent. So here's what we see in the, one of the first verses of the Bible. There's a devil who's causing a lot of trouble and conflict, but a hero is coming at some point who will crush the head of the serpent and bring victory to the human race. Scholars, in their nerdiness, came up with a word for this verse. They call it, a, it's a Latin word called proto-evangelium. It comes from two words, proto meaning first, and evangelium meaning uh, good news or or the gospel, the first gospel, the first appearance of the gospel. This is amazing. You might think that the gospel only shows up when Paul the apostle starts talking about it in Romans or Galatians. It actually shows up in the first few chapters of the Bible, meaning that the New Testament is not God's plan B, it's his plan A, and it started right here. God said, there's a problem. I'm going to deal with that problem. I am sending a hero who will come forth, and he will crush the head of the devil. The gospel appears in the first few verses of the Bible. There is a devil, yes. There is evil in the world, but there is a hero who is coming. Now, the question that that leads us to answer which I hope the next five verses will answer for you, is who is this hero, and what is he gonna do? Second verse, First John chapter three, verse eight. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Some of you are asking, why are we talking about the devil for Christmas? Because that's why Jesus came. That is the reason why Christmas exists. It exists for a lot of other things too. A lot of joyful things, but it also exists for some pretty cosmic things. The son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Out of Genesis, we get this continual focus. What Christmas does is it forces us to focus on one man in history, Jesus Christ. And it tells us a few things about him. The other four verses are unfolding proof that Jesus is the son of God who is that hero in Genesis who came to destroy evil and the works of the devil. I want to start with the third verse. That's Luke 10 verse 18. Jesus is with his disciples. He's a grown up. He's ministering now and he sees a vision and he spouts out in Luke chapter 10 verse 18. This is the third scripture. You can go ahead and show it. He said to his disciples, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Okay. Third verse in our, in our little time together today. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus right now is, is declaring to his disciples ahead of time a decisive end to Satan's power and influence and reign in the world. He's trash-talking the devil right now. He's saying, I saw him a long time ago falling from his place of authority. Now, you might, if you were one of Christ's disciples at that time, you might be like, yeah, but I still see the effects of the devil or something wrong with the world. We might still say that today. Jesus is looking to the future. He's saying, I know it's gonna happen. I'm the one who writes history. I'm God in the flesh. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, he doesn't just trash talk spiritual darkness. He actually models it as well. In Matthew chapter four and in Luke chapter four, we see that one of the first things that Jesus does is he is led by, uh, by his father uh, into the wilderness for a time of obscurity to fast and to pray. And he is led by, by God to be tempted by the devil, right? This is the first thing that Jesus does in his earthly ministry, is to undergo temptation by the devil. Now, in Luke chapter four, we're told that what the devil does is he, he tempts him with every possible temptation. Uh, when you're reading this story, you only see three things. Is that everything? Well, that might lead us to say, well, uh, that might lead us to think what the devil does is he, he, he throws towards Jesus everything that tempts the cravings of the human heart. So, lust for power and authority Desire to be uh, loved by people, approval of other people, uh, security, money, all of those things that are are deeply ingrained in our cravings and longings. Uh, The devil throws those types of temptations at Jesus. And Luke chapter 4 says that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. So he doesn't just use like his divine powers, you know, he doesn't use, you know, God tricks. He does it the way that he would later expect all human beings to live, filled with the Spirit. And he resists the devil. It says in Matthew 4.10, Jesus says to the devil, Be gone, Satan! And then the devil left him alone. What we see at the very beginning of Jesus' life is this guy is different this man is different than anybody else he can actually resist the devil satan has no claims on this guy now it doesn't just stop there i want to introduce the fourth passage of scripture because what we see in the fourth passage of scripture is that the devil or excuse me is that jesus doesn't just resist the devil it turns out he bullies him around Jesus bullies the devil around. Look at Mark chapter one, verse 27. This is the fourth verse I want to show you. It's exclaimed about Jesus on a particular scene. Who is this guy? He commands even the unclean spirits, demons, and they obey him. Now this verse comes right after a situation where Jesus is casting demons out. You have to understand. I know, you know, in Today's media and world movies and all of that stuff, literature, uh, you know, exorcisms and demons, like it's so sensational and it's like a circus, we don't take it seriously. But in this day, in other parts of the world today, but in this context, uh, to the Hebrews, to the people living in this time, demons were very real as they are today and they were very despairing of that situation. If you were to read the Old Testament for example, you would never come across a situation where a demon was cast out. It didn't happen until Jesus came in on the scene. Demons were not pushed around, at least in the Old Testament in ancient writings. There's no real uh, cases of this happening until Jesus comes in on the scene. He comes in on the scene and demons are just being just thrown out of the building everywhere. Just by his words, there's something different about this guy. And so what you have here is people exclaiming, who is this guy? We've never seen this before. This is a teaching with authority. When he speaks, things happen. Even the demons obey him. The same demons who torment people are themselves being tormented. Who is this guy? There's a... a Another verse in, in Matthew on the, along the same lines in chapter 12. If you want, you can turn there now. I'll just read it to you uh, from the, the NLT version in, in verse 29, verse 28 too as well. Jesus is asking his disciples this question. And he says, you know, Jesus uses a lot of metaphorical language and parables, uh, word pictures. And he says, hey, listen. If I were to cast a demon out by the Spirit of God, wouldn't that mean that the kingdom of God has come upon you? Uh, Jesus is, is asking a rhetorical question here. You know why I know? Because the verse before that, he casts out a demon. And, now he's, and he doesn't just cast out a demon. If you read that passage in, in Matthew chapter 12, he casts a demon out of a person, heals that person of blindness and lameness. Three supernatural, impossible things. He does that. And then he asks his disciples... Just asking for a friend, but like, if, if someone were to come along and, and cast out a demon and heal them, wouldn't that be something special? Wouldn't that mean that God has come? Rhetorical question, they don't answer because they know. He just did that. Then he goes on to say this. Listen to this. Matthew chapter Matthew 12, verse 29. For who is powerful, this is Jesus' words, who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? He's speaking in the context of the devil and demons. A strong man is the devil. The devil is strong. He's saying, "Who is strong enough to enter a? Str- uh, who is powerful enough to enter the house of the devil? A strong man and plunder his goods." Another rhetorical question that he answers himself, and he says, "Only someone even stronger. Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house." I love how Jesus talks. What is he saying here? He just cast the devil out. And he's asking a rhetorical question. If someone comes along and casts the devil out, doesn't that mean that they're special? And who is strong enough really to cast out the devil? Someone who's stronger than the devil. A strong man. Who can cast out a strong man but someone who's stronger than that strong man? What is Jesus doing here right after he cast a demon out? He's making a claim about himself. He's saying, I am the strong man. Excuse me, I am the stronger man. I am stronger than the devil. Now, everything that he has done up to this point, even though it's pretty awesome, is still yet a taste of things to come. He's only wetting the appetite of humanity by showing his great power. The real victory would come with his death and resurrection, this is where that, that blow would come to, the, to spiritual forces of darkness and where real victory would come. Paul later, at, writing after the fact in Colossians 2, this is the fifth verse out of our six. In Colossians chapter two, verse 15, Paul says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. Rulers and authorities is, is a kind of a, a phrase that Paul uses to speak about d- demons He says, Jesus disarmed demons and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus disarmed them and then humiliated him. So Jesus doesn't just have the power to resist the devil, and he doesn't just bully the devil around, he also humiliates him on a public stage. And you'll never guess how he does this. But later, uh, the author who wrote Hebrews, in chapter 2, verse 14, says, Therefore, since therefore the children, uh, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Here's the line I want you to see. That through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So, what we always celebrate on Good Friday when Jesus dies on the cross. In other words, why does Christmas exist? Jesus was born so that he could die. Now this is really interesting because we would think of a death as a a tragic turn of events. His disciples thought of his death as a tragic turn of events. But the Bible is calling it, later apostles are saying, this is actually God's victory. Do you remember what the author in Genesis said? Serpent shall bite him in the heel. I don't know what that means, but maybe it means a mortal blow. Maybe it even means that he will die. But that hero will come back and crush the head of the serpent. Author of Hebrews is saying right here, hey, he will be, his heel will be bruised. He will die on that cross, but through his death, he will crush the head of the serpent. Of the devil. He will destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. When Christ sees Satan fall from the sky, he's speaking in image, uh, uh, imaginative terms to describe his victory on the cross and in his resurrection. He is saying, there is coming a point, and I'm going to bring it, Jesus is saying, when I will crush the head of the serpent, his power will be broken, and people will no longer have to live under his rule and reign. God, speaking to humanity, there's something wrong with the world. It is the powers of darkness, but I am sending a hero and he will crush the head of the devil. Last verse. Romans 16, verse 20. After God sends his hero to crush the head of Satan, Paul later writes to the church, to people gathered around Jesus, and he says this, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. See what's happening? Now you ain't hearing what I'm preaching right now. We just saw through the whole story of the Bible that Jesus is the one who crushes the head of the serpent. Paul is now saying, the God of peace will soon crush Satan, now under your feet. Now the crushing is being addressed to God's people. Now it's come full circle. It's almost as if Christ's feet have become our feet. Paul even uses that metaphorical language to describe the church as Christ's body. And now we are to experience that type of crushing In fact, Jesus himself would say to his disciples in that verse we just read, when Jesus casts out demons, he takes authority over the devil, and then he speaks about the kingdom of God coming. He asks those rhetorical questions. He speaks about himself being the stronger one. He then says right after that, he says to his disciples, and he says to his disciples today, behold, that's ancient language for check it out. I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. Now, not, uh, no, don't go out of here and like, try to step on a rattlesnake, okay? He's using that, again, that metaphorical language to speak about evil. He's saying, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Do you see what's happening? Christ's power has been given to his people. Christ's power becomes our power. That means we no longer have to be under the influence of evil or darkness. We no longer have to be enslaved to the powers of the devil. We no longer have to be influenced by them. We no longer have to be in bondage to them. We no longer have to be uh, enslaved to them. And not just like we saw earlier, we don't just have the power to resist the devil like Jesus did. We also have authority over him and spiritual forces of darkness in heavenly places, as Paul would later say. And it's not because we're that special, we're not. It's because Christ in us is the hope of glory. John would say in 1 John chapter four, verse one, that uh, greater is he who is in us, that is God, than the devil who is in the world. We have been given the same type of power that Christ modeled in his earthly ministry. You may say, well, how do we model it? How is the devil's power broken in our lives? Well, if you look at the scriptures, you see that it's in things like preaching the gospel of the kingdom, talking about Jesus, as silly as that sounds, about what he's done and what he can do and, and, and his great promises, testifying about those things. And we see that something incredible happens. Uh, Paul said in Romans that he is not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. And that, 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 that need to be liberated is in itself spiritual. Have you ever tried to speak to someone and they just refuse to believe it? That was me my entire life. I grew up in a Christian home, was born into a Christian home, went to all the church things, from flannel grafts when I was a children to uh, weird junior high camps when I was older. Until I was in college age and I was old enough to run away. And I ran away and I said, I'm not, this is not for me. Even though I had been hearing it my entire life for 16 years. And then one day, as I was going to college, someone dragged my feet into a church in Carpinteria. And I didn't want to go. And I sat there through that two hour long service, pretending to pay attention. And something happened in my heart. I don't know what it was, but this six foot two inch tall dude with shaggy hair was talking about Jesus, and something was kindled in my heart. I don't know what it was, and I can't explain it, but you know what Paul says about that? He says that the God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers, that it's not just because we're stubborn, it's not just because we're smart, it's actually because we are being spiritually oppressed and attacked just as I was, that there was a fog. And yet, a few verses later, Paul goes on to say, but, but, but God who causes light to shine in darkness, causes light to shine into our hearts, revealing the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That even though it's the devil who tries to blind us and fog our minds, it is God who causes light to clear our minds to see him as beautiful and as glorious and as alluring as he actually is. And in that moment, we are saved, not because someone argued us into the kingdom of God, but because God opened our eyes to see talking about yeah that means it's not in the, the the cleverness of your speech some of you are saying well i need to be a public speaker to talk about jesus no you don't just talk about him paul would later say in corinthians it's through the foolishness of the message preached that god was will uh, pleased to save those who are lost it's through the foolishness of the message Paul would later say that God has chosen the foolish, uh, foolish things of the world to confound the wise. So God is pleased to use foolish people to, with a foolish message. message uh, see, I can't even get the words out right now. <laughs> to show the world that it is his great power being put on display. I tremble to think of what would happen if you were to speak about Jesus more in the marketplace and in the workplace and in recreation and on the street and with your neighbor, if Christ were to be spoken about and exalted, what would happen in the spiritual realm? Hearts might be liberated. We have to say that the devil's power is broken in God's people through kingdom signs. That if Jesus healed the sick and healed minds and healed bodies and he gives us the authority to do it too, that we might be able to to do that too that if we were to lay hands on, on the sick, spiritually sick, emotionally sick, physically sick, that people would get healed. Now, you remember last week when we spoke about the curse that uh, is still here and, and will only be completely lifted at Christ's second uh, coming. And so there, there might be times when we pray, there will be times when we pray and, and people don't get healed. But there should also be times when we pray and people are touched by the hand of God, where we pray for oppression to be released and demons are expelled because of the Spirit of God within us. It also happens through just living in the kingdom. Those are kind of extraordinary uh, examples of the kingdom, but also ordinary. The Spirit of God works within the ordinary through normal people living normal lives by the Spirit of God. Going to work and being filled with the love of God. Being in marriages that uh, glorify God. Being single in a way that, that shows off the beauty of God. Parenting children with love and patience. To see deep character in people that comes from no other place than knowing Jesus. This is space that used to be the devil's that is now being occupied by people who have encountered the living God. It is what Jesus described in the Sermon on the Mount as the church being salt and light. That also pushes back the devil's power. We'd have to say that prayer obviously pushes back the the darkness. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we do not fight like normal people fight with the flesh. That, That was his way of saying we don't fight with brass knuckles and shanks and stuff like that with nine millimeters and such, we, we fight with a different weapon. Paul says, our weapons, the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for the destruction of spiritual forces. One of the things that he's speaking about is prayer. He says, we don't punch people, we don't yell at people, we don't fight people, actually, we fight spiritual darkness, we fight it with prayer. Do you know, Christian, that your prayers are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses? that if you were to pray over the city of Santa Barbara, that God will answer your prayers? The darkness might even flee? Lastly, we'd have to say worship. And I don't mean in a reductionist way, like just singing, but our, our lives are worship. When we obey Christ, that's worship. But I do wanna hone in on the singing part. And not just singing, but praising. You know, whenever you, you exalt the name of Jesus, that's an act of worship. You don't have to sing it. You could just just pray it. When you, when you pray things like, God, you are exalted above the nations. You rule and reign. Even in the face of all of these odds and circumstances, you are enthroned upon the praises of your people. You are awesome. You are worthy of praise. That's worship. There seems to be a spiritual dynamic in that whenever we do it. In First Samuel 16, verse 23, uh, King Saul is plagued with uh, an evil spirit. And one of the guys in his court says, you know what, you need to get that young boy David to come uh, play music, get his harp, you know, and play music. And they, they, they bring him, he plays the harp, and the spirit leaves him, that evil spirit. Now, it's not because David was awesome at, like, just blazing harp solos and stuff, What the text says, what what the people in the king's court actually say is because God is with him. And as he, he worships the Lord, it actually changes the spiritual climate. We see this all over the Bible in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, a physical problem. Israel is surrounded by physical armies, but there's a spiritual force behind that. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, King Jehoshaphat actually does something really strange. I would not recommend this if you were a battle commander. He sends a bunch of people to worship and praise God into the battlefield. Instead of the warriors, they go out and they exalt Jesus, just like we were talking about earlier. And it says that as they do that, God fights on their behalf. The physical and the spiritual are changed. Acts chapter 16, I could go for days with these examples, Acts chapter 16, verse 25 through 26, Paul and Silas are in a prison for their faith in Christ, and they're locked up, and what do they do? They're in the stocks, man. What do they do? They start singing hymns of praise to God. And two things happen. One, their chains, their physical chains break, and the doors open, but they stay there. And the jailer sees that the doors are open. He thinks that they've escaped and he's about to kill himself because he's, he's afraid of what might happen to him. And they're all there and they're like, hey, you can read the story yourself, Acts 16. They say, hey, we're all here, man. You don't have to kill yourself. And he throws himself on his knees and says, what must I do, sirs, to be saved? Spiritual and physical. Now, let's just get this straight. As a people of God, Worship is not primarily about what it can do to spiritual forces of darkness, right? Why do we worship? We worship because of God. We worship primarily because God is good and beautiful and glorious and he is the creator and we are the creation and that is the right relationship to him. We are created to exalt him and give him glory and fame and rec- recognition. That is the right way to be human, uh, in a manner of speaking. I'm just saying that as a side benefit of that, it also seems to be in the Bible that the spiritual climate of things is actually changed by our praise and worship. That when we praise and exalt and are connected in the right, healthy way to God, it actually shifts the spiritual climate. Can you believe that? That the blessings of God are experienced when we are in right relationship to God. To quote uh, uh, the great theologian, uh, Chance the Rapper. When the praises go up, the blessings come down. Do you actually believe that? Do you believe the authority that you have? As men and women who have been bought with a price and have been brought into the fold of God, Jesus personally says to his disciples, I have given you authority. Do you believe that? Or do you still live with the western mindset? I see it on paper but I'm going to live with what I can see with my own eyes. There's a problem. It's called evil and sin. But there's also a hero that came 2,000 years ago to destroy the works of the devil and to crush the head of the, uh, of the serpent. And he saves people from out of the devil's grasp, brings them into his family, gives him the same authority and power that he has himself. And yet, if there's anything that's even crazier than that, it's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verse 20. He says to his disciples, now, this is right after they start actually doing some of the things that he says. They're they're casting out demons. They're seeing tremendous things. And Jesus says, listen, don't rejoice that evil spirits submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus is, if I can paraphrase, he's saying, hey, yeah, this is awesome, but that's not the most awesome thing. The most awesome thing is God loves you. And even the reason that the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil is because that God so loves precious people who he made for himself. You, you are precious to God. So grieved was his heart over the effect of evil that he did something about it. Yes, he crushed the head of the devil. Why did he do it? He did it because he loved people who he made in his own image. You're sitting here, I don't know where you've been or what is going through your mind or what kind of doubts or questions you have about God, but I know this, God can handle your doubts and your questions today. And what he's saying to you right now is, I mean, I ain't tripping on your questions. I just want you to know that you are loved. The God who has authority over the devil, over human history, stooped down and became a baby to tell the human race you are loved by God. There is no one like this Jesus in all of human history. He is the God of human history, draped in human flesh. He sits at the right hand of the Father, holds the world together by his powerful word. And even demons tremble and cower before him, for they know that their time is limited. And one day, every nation will bow before the King of glory. But right now, the God who loves calls on men and women today to worship him now the only one who can deliver you from sin, from the curse, from even demonic oppression and influence is the one that the world has been waiting for. Even the word that we use for Christmas, Advent, means arrival. That means your hero has arrived. I love the words of the, the, the classic Christmas carol that put it this way. It takes everything that I just spewed for the last few minutes and writes it in four lines. God rest ye merry gentlemen and gentlewomen. Let, nothing, n- let none of you dis- be dismayed. For Jesus Christ, our Savior, was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's powers when we were gone astray, glad tidings of comfort and joy. What child is this? What child is this who's laid to rest in Mary's lap sleeping? Oh, this is Christ. This is Christ the King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask today um, from these snapshots that Holy Spirit, you would do what I am unable to do, what any one of us are unable to do, and that is to believe and to see you for who you are. For that, we need, we need your Holy Spirit to impress these truths upon our hearts. You, Christ, who have been worshipped throughout the centuries by people who have seen you, whose eyes have been opened to see you, we, we pray that today our eyes would be opened. Maybe for the first time for others, opened wider than before. We thank you for putting on display your great power over the world, over the devil, over darkness, and how you will one day finish all of that when you destroy death as well. You are in the process of making everything new. Right now, I pray that you would give us eyes to see that the one who makes all things new, the one who is eternally powerful, who is writing history as we speak, who is the solution to all of our ailments and problems, saw fit to stoop down and to look at each of us individually and say, I love you. And I pray that that's what we hear in the midst of all of this talk of spiritual warfare and oppression and cosmic battles. We would hear the God of the universe looking into each of our eyes right now and saying, I love you. And may the love of God that has been seen so vividly in the birth of Jesus Christ start to melt down our walls right now. In Jesus' name, amen.